I'll try not to do this too often, but uh, man, it is wealth. Like, if you if you like stumbled onto a satchel of cash with like a buy a private island kind of money in it, and like it was yours. It wouldn't really matter what happened to you probably for the rest of the day. Like, because you know the value of a dollar, you'd say, this was a pretty good day, right? Like, if you read the lyrics of it as well, and like how it doesn't matter what is going on in life, if you understand the value of the gospel, like, every day can be a great day. Like, it is such a great song, especially if you know what, everything that was going on in Horatio Spafford's life. Like, if you don't know the story behind the song, I would encourage you to look that up. This is such a powerful song. Uh, This morning, I'm still in Psalms. Uh, This morning, we're back in uh, Acts. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 12, verse 25. And we're going to make our way through the beginning of the first missionary journey. So this text kind of opens a new panel Uh, in the book of Acts, and uh, looks at, uh, we've seen uh, that the gospel has already gone out to the Gentiles in Cornelius, but like in a sort of Samaritan city, and like there's some qualifications, and then here in Acts chapter 13, we see for the first time the church very much intentionally sending people out specifically for the Gentiles, and so uh, excited to uh, walk through this text with you this morning. I'd like to, to read it and then to pray with you. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 25, we read, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the testimony of the book of Acts. It is incredible to see the power of the gospel displayed in so many diverse ways with so many diverse people. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning, God, that our hearts would be stilled, God, that our minds would more clearly see the power of the gospel at work, and God, that we would uh, grow in our trust that God, uh, the powerful working of the gospel that we see miraculously playing out in the book of Acts is the same gospel at work in us today. Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, as we see uh, your sovereign hand, Lord, as we see you defeating the kingdom of Satan as we see your grace triumphing again and again, that our hearts would embrace the fact that these things are still happening because you do not change. God, we pray that you would be glorified in us as the power of the gospel is displayed. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted high, God, that your will would be accomplished in us for your glory and for the building of Christ's church. In his name we pray, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, we took a brief aside from the happenings in Antioch, uh, to go back to Jerusalem to see uh, Peter's miraculous escape uh, from prison in Jerusalem, and then Luke jumps back to Antioch, but we don't stay in Antioch long. Uh, You'll remember, uh, we saw when we were last here, that the church in Antioch, for the good of the church in Jerusalem, decided to send Barnabas and Saul along with an offering to Jerusalem for the famine that Agabus had predicted would befall Jerusalem. And as Saul and Barnabas are returning back to Antioch, they bring with with them uh, the guy, John Mark, later just known as Mark, uh, that we'll become increasingly familiar with. You might remember last week we were at his mom's house, right, when Rhoda and the church hear about everything that the Lord had done for Peter. That was at, at mom's house. Uh, and John Mark is uh, going to end up playing kind of a pivotal role, uh, not so much in what happens uh, on the first missionary journey, but kind of what happens into the next uh, missionary journey. Uh, But these three make it back to Antioch, and then Luke kind of summarizes for us uh, the nature of the church in Antioch at this point, starting out with a list of who are recognized as some, something like leaders in the Antiochian church, uh, and he gives for us uh, Barnabas and Saul, who we already knew kind of had occupied that position in the past, but he also lists Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger is a, a Latinism uh, for, for black, uh, so Simeon is probably from North Africa. Lucius is certainly from North Africa. Cyrene is a city uh, in North Africa. 
and Manaan, uh, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the, the Tetrarch. The Greek word, for, we're translating lifelong friend, uh, basically means uh, he and Herod had the same wet nurse. So probably from infancy, they grew up together. Uh, probably Manaan grew up in Herod's household. Maybe he was a foster brother of Herod, maybe not. Uh, but it probably explains why Luke has been able to give us kind of so much color about Herod to this point, especially last week, kind of in how things ended, uh, because uh, these guys know a very, very good friend of Herod. But I think probably the, the larger point that Luke is making here is that uh, the leadership of the church uh, uh, is a diverse group, right? Probably reflecting the church itself, that there are people of means and there are people without means, that there are uh, people essentially of every race and creed, that uh, the leadership of the church uh, is established, they're recognized, and there isn't a particular type of person that makes up the leadership of the church other than these people are recognized as prophets and teachers. And he goes on to say that uh, the church was together worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit tells them uh, to set apart Barnabas and Saul again for the work to which I have called them. And I there there's lots of things to note about verse 2. Number one, the, the church is expectantly uh, looking for the Lord to do something, right? That uh, their uh, fasting would indicate, uh, fasting they would have understood is, is something that you probably only do uh, for a festival or with the expectancy that the Lord is about to move in a big way. And so they've, uh, they're looking for some big thing that uh, they are able to give to the Lord as worship. And as they're doing that, uh, the Lord speaks to them. The Lord tells them exactly what they need to do next. And it is, again, to send Barnabas and Saul off. And I think, uh, you know, there's the way I think, probably, and then there's what's actually happening here. And I think probably most of you are, are like me in this regard, that, uh, you know, uh, how and why are pretty important questions, right? Like, uh, if if uh, one of you were to say, I'm ready to do some work, and I'm like, well, what is it? How are you going to do it? Well, why do you think this is important? Like, I would want to know, like, uh, a lot of color that the Spirit does not give the church at this point. The Spirit just says, uh, I have some work for them to do, and no explanation offered as to what it is. We know that Saul knows what this work is, but we don't really have any indication that Saul has shared this with the church in Antioch, right? We already know Saul is called as an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, but the Spirit gives them kind of the, the vaguest of directions, like, I want you guys to send them out, and uh, doesn't really explain much else, and the response of the church without necessarily knowing how or why is obedience. They continue fasting and praying, they lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them off. That is, when there is clear direction from the Spirit, the church obeys. 
And so already, I think, uh, just kind of in Luke's uh, summary of how things have been going in the Antioch church or like where things are at, setting up the main event, really, uh, I think probably there are several things that uh, we should emulate or at least understand. Uh, n- number one, I think uh, Luke is trying to demonstrate to us that the church in Antioch is a healthy church, right? That uh, we already knew that the gospel was being clearly proclaimed there, but the proclamation of the gospel doesn't make a church. Uh, that the gospel is being clearly proclaimed. There is an established leadership. The leadership is responsive to the Spirit. The church is responsive to the Spirit, and they are also ascending church. They understand that they're not about their own work, that they're about the Lord's work, and so they are commissioning people to go and do the Lord's work. And I would suggest to you that uh, everything about the narrative of Acts indicates that those are things that are absolutely vital in a healthy church, that uh, a church should be a, a, a people who clearly proclaim <coughs> excuse me, the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, hold fast to the Gospel of Christ, that uh, there is an established leadership, there's an expectancy for the Lord's work, and then there's a willingness to obey the Lord's call. And uh, probably even more than that, uh, it's not just the expectancy and the obedience even, but the understanding that part of being a church means commissioning people to go. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult, notice that once again, the Lord is calling this church to send two of the five people that are recognized as leaders in the church out. That uh, even when this church is is faced with a situation where uh, they might recognize uh, that sending these people out isn't for the good of our church. We're going to suffer with the loss of these two, right? They understand that the overall advance of the gospel is the mission of the church, right? That uh, the church is not about building our kingdom here. It's about building Christ's kingdom above all else. And uh, after Luke sort of sets all this up for us, he uh, gives us a summary of how this first missionary journey goes. Uh, and, and throughout this uh, text, he really emphasizes that it's the Holy Spirit who is directing things. It's the Spirit who calls them to go. It's uh, the Spirit who sends them here. Later, it's Paul who is filled with the Spirit who confronts Elymas, that, that Acts is principally a book about the work of the Holy Spirit, and the context is the church. And they uh, end up going to a place that the gospel we've heard in Acts has already been, but maybe not established. They go to the closest island, uh, Cyprus. And Cyprus is about, well, they go down to uh, Seleucia, uh, the port city for Antioch where they're at, right? So Antioch sits off 16 miles off the coast, Orontes River, Seleucia, they get down to the port on the Mediterranean, and then they sail from there 
uh, across, 60 miles across the Mediterranean uh, and get to Salamis, which is the easternmost city on Cyprus. It's the former capital of Cyprus. The Romans had made a city on the other side of the island, the capital, when they made it a colony. And when they get here, uh, they go uh, to the synagogue and they begin proclaiming the word of God. And that's a pattern that's going to carry out uh, through the rest of the book of Acts. Even as uh, Paul understands his call to the Gentiles, and even as from this point forward, we'll see uh, Paul very much being uh, all about the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles, that if there is a synagogue in the city, Paul usually starts in the, or does always start in the synagogue if there's a city, uh, and then depending on how the word is received there, he might leave the synagogue, uh, but he always starts with the Jew first, uh, proclaims the gospel, uh, and then see what doors the Lord opens or closes. And, uh, you know, I think probably that also is a, a pattern generally that we should emulate. If Paul's thinking uh, beyond to the Jew first uh, as sort of a scriptural mold is uh, go to a place and look for the people who are closest to belief, or sometimes in missiology we call them people of peace, uh, people who understand something about God, people who maybe understand something about their own sin, and make the gospel clear to them. And if the ground proves fertile, like if their hearts are ready to receive Christ, then minister there. And uh, if not, then move out. Uh, but always start where you think the ground is softest when you're proclaiming the gospel, and then see what doors the Lord opens and what doors the Lord closes. And even as uh, you share the gospel in school or at work or wherever else, I think uh, the pattern Paul gives us is, is an excellent one. Start where you think the ground is softest, and then see what doors the Lord opens or closes. And they continue. Luke doesn't really tell us how it goes. Uh, he just tells us they continue. They probably walked around the south coast of the island and end up in Paphos, uh, the new capital. And when they get there, they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Right? And this probably should remind us of a confrontation that uh, Peter had already had, uh, but when they get to Pathos, uh, they meet a guy, not unlike the guy we'd already met, uh, his name, his Jewish name, means son of Jesus, which is maybe a little bit ironic uh, that Paul and Barnabas get here to proclaim Christ, and they run into son of Jesus, and he seems very much to be an enemy of the gospel. Probably everything about the way Luke introduces him to us should indicate, uh, like, we're supposed to think of this guy as a villain. He is Jewish. He understands well what God has said about uh, magic, the dark arts, sorcery, and yet he has ignored the warnings of God against all of those things and made a name for himself uh, as a, a, practicer, uh, a person who practices magic. Uh, not only that, uh, but he has cultivated a role with the proconsul, so this would be uh, the Roman ruler of the island, Sergius Paulus, who is introduced to us as an intelligent guy, 
uh, yet uh, he has taken on Bar-Jesus as an advisor, right? And we don't really know what Bar-Jesus does. Maybe he uh, sort of predicts the future, or maybe he just gives advice. Uh, but uh, when Paul and Barnabas get to town, Sergius Paulus calls them. He's interested in hearing what they have to say, and uh, Bar-Jesus is not about that. Uh, he's now introduced to us as Elymas, uh, but same guy. Elymas would be his Greek name, which is probably a transliteration of uh, the Aramaic word for, like, magician. Uh, and uh, which is why Luke tells us that's the meaning of his name. He opposes them, and he seeks to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Right? And so the showdown is sort of set up. The proconsul wants to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. He might even be uh, a person of peace himself. Uh, right? Romans uh, generally uh, thought of Judaism, Jews as troublesome people. Judea is a very troublesome place, but they did have I don't know, there's some indication they had something of a respect for uh, Judaism as an ancient religion with maybe like more truth than some other religions. And so it might seem weird to us that now we're seeing uh, like in non-Jewish places, Jews in like advisory roles and also practicers of the dark arts. But uh, it wouldn't be hard for a Jewish person in a Roman court to kind of cultivate an aura of like mysterious knowledge, and uh, so this this guy who has cultivated a reputation as uh, being particularly wise, or maybe even being able to uh, see the future, has decided he's going to do everything that he can to keep Sergius Paulus uh, away from Paul and Barnabas, and seeks to oppose the gospel. And in the midst of this showdown, Saul who to this point had kind of always been uh, second to Barnabas, right? We always see Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and kind of from this point forward, I think except once, it'll be Paul and Barnabas. And it's at this point that we start referring to him uh, by his Greek name. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looks intently at Bar-Jesus and says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? Right? And I guess memorize that, because that's, that's something you'll probably say frequently uh, to other people, right? <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know that you should. But, uh, uh, Paul... Uh, Paul, Luke is very, uh, very much commending this to us, not necessarily as something to directly say here, but he's in. Paul is filled with the Spirit and says this, right? It's not, well, Paul got really frustrated and in a moment of weakness, he said something he probably shouldn't have, but he is filled with the Spirit and says a pretty insulting thing, Right? A true thing, but a somewhat insulting thing. And <coughs> whether you ever utter 
the words that Paul uses here, uh, I think there are some things here that are worthy of emulation as well, uh, that, that we should reflect at least portions of what we're seeing in Paul at this point, uh, right? That the situation is clear, that there is somebody who is directly opposed to the gospel, seeking to keep someone in unbelief, and uh, in that situation, uh, Paul, even though you could, I think, very much argue that, well, this isn't a very gracious thing to say to Elymas, Paul very clearly calls this out for exactly what it is. Right? He, he speaks the truth clearly, directly, confrontationally, but clearly uh, to someone who is publicly opposing the gospel. And I think probably that's something that we ought to latch on to, that in our minds, uh, we need to understand clearly that there is a difference between a person privately being opposed to the gospel and a person publicly being opposed to the gospel, a person publicly trying to keep other people in unbelief. And I would suggest to you that that's probably part of what conditions Paul's response here, that with the public opposition to the gospel, a very public and clear rebuke becomes uh, not only necessary, but probably the overall most gracious response, right? Like, you could say it's, it's not all that gracious to Elymas, but it certainly is gracious to Sergius Paulus that Paul is clear about what is happening here, that this person is speaking evil, right? And our, our, our goal as Christians should always be uh, to be as gracious with a person as we can, but even more than be gracious with any individual, we need to be as gracious as we can with all people. And sometimes that does necessitate us saying clear but somewhat confrontational things. When the public, when opposition to the gospel is public, I would say uh, this should certainly condition our response, that the overall most gracious thing we can do when there is clear public opposition to the gospel is to clearly and publicly denounce it. I, uh, I don't know that I'd say this on a typical Sunday, but well, we're a smaller group, and you guys don't mind being here all day, right? Nobody's in a hurry to get back out in the negative 20. Uh, right, the, this played out, I think, for like a thought floating around in my head, right, but never really had uh, a situation until a few years ago. When we're in Mexicali, uh, sometimes at the end of the day, we kind of let the there's vendors in the town that we stay in, and let the kids go to the town or go to a vendor and buy food. And uh, you know, <coughs> when 30 kids go one at a time to uh, buy a snack or whatever, like the group can kind of get stretched out. Uh, some people are done eating their snack before other people even got their snack. And as we're kind of in a line making our way back to camp. Uh, there were, were some students and, and a, a Spanish speaker uh, talking with some Mexican people that live in the, the town. Uh, 
and walked up, and I certainly don't know everybody in the village, but I, I've known, gotten to know a few people over the years, and I knew some of these people I don't know, some of these people I do know, uh, Mexican people I do know, Mexican people I don't know, and as I come up there, the, the, our students were pretty excited. They said, hey, come talk to these people. We don't really understand what they're saying. And sure, and came up and started talking to them. Uh, and my Spanish is awful. But uh, as I'm talking to them, hearing what they're saying, it became clear to me that uh, some of the people that I didn't know and uh, maybe were newer to the village uh, were spouting a, I don't know, it's Jesus-only movement, I guess is what I think of it as. Uh, it's kind of kind of like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, but different. Uh, but it's a non-Trinitarian movement. Like, they, they roundly reject the Trinity, but they're all about Jesus, right? So, like, if you don't speak Spanish well or you're not uh, theologically astute, they sound like people that are Christians, but they're very much not the historic Christians, Orthodox Christians in the way we are. It's a heresy, right? And as they're talking to our students and as these other Mexican people are hearing what they're saying, like, uh, I went on, like, attack. Like, like, theological debate Brad came out, and, like, I just started letting have it rattle off biblical texts, right? Just basically saying, like, we have, we have, no, I am nothing like you guys. We are not on the same team. Like, if you're not Trinitarian, you're going to hell. And uh, the students understood, like, enough of what was going on. Like, this is not gracious, kind Brad. Like, this is angry Brad. Uh, and, like, we're, as we're walking away, you know, the conversation ends, and as we're walking back to the camp, uh, we're like, what on earth is wrong with you? Like, why did you get... I'm like, well, I don't know if you understood what they're saying, but what they're saying is not Christianity, and they're saying that it is. And for the sake of the people who weren't with them, but were hearing everything, we need to be incredibly clear about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, and it's, it's in love for those other people that I was so hard on these people. And I think that's what we're seeing in Paul here, right? That uh, sometimes uh, the most gracious thing we can do overall is be, not even sometimes, always, the most gracious thing we can do overall is protect the integrity of the gospel, and when someone's publicly opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ, to very publicly oppose that person. Yet, even as Paul does this, uh, he pronounces a curse on Elymas. I think there's an element of grace in the curse itself. Uh, he, he says that the hand of the Lord is going to come upon you. You will be blind and a, unable to see the sun for some time. Right? That as a display that everything that he just said is true, uh, Paul is going to uh, see the Spirit of the Lord strike Elymas with blindness. And uh, interestingly, right, like, Paul was on a path away from God, is struck with blindness, and comes to spiritual light. And maybe in the back of Paul's mind, you're thinking, maybe you, I hope you have the same experience with blindness that I did. Uh, but we don't know. The text never tells us what happens with Elymas, only uh, that he is struck blind for a time. 
right? That I think there's evident grace in limiting the blindness of Elymas to a specific period. And, and uh, I think that also is probably something we should be mindful here, that, that Paul does, I think, leave a path to repentance and faith. And even in a situation where we as Christians uh, in grace need to be clear protectors of the gospel, that we should always, at any time that we can, leave a person a path towards repentance and faith. That that we should always be as gracious as possible to the group of people in front of us, and we should never be less gracious to any individual than we need to be uh, to be gracious to all in the clear proclamation of the gospel. And what Paul says comes to pass immediately. Darkness falls over him, and uh, he is being led by the hand around, right? So uh, for Sergius Paulus witnessing all this, this guy who he had been trusting to be you know, seeing an advisor or even a person predicting the future uh, is now stumbling around the courtroom asking for someone to lead him, and there couldn't be uh, any clearer picture of who can really see spiritual truth here, right? Paul and Barnabas standing there and Elymas incapable of sight. It's clear to Sergius Paulus at this point who is speaking the truth and he believes, right? The, the governor of the island believes uh, when he sees what occurs, but notice, uh, notice that he is... Uh, principally astonished, not at the miracle of Elymas being struck blind, but astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And and I would would say as much as I appreciate all the dimensions of this text, probably uh, that this is uh, the most important one for us to focus our attention on, that it was and is still always the Spirit of the Lord working through the Word of the Lord that changes hearts. Right? The, the miracle didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. The Spirit did it through the clear proclamation of the Lord's Word. And I think that I think that a large part of the reason uh, that the American church is so ineffective uh, in evangelism is our own self-importance. Right? That uh, we say that it's God who changes hearts, uh, yet we really believe it's us. Right? Like. I'm the one who's going to lead this person to Christ. I'm the one who's going to change this person. Like, we'll, we'll say it, we'll say God changes hearts, but we, in our hearts, we believe we're the ones who are doing it, and in our minds, we know that we can't do it, and so we don't even really try, right? Like, uh, that's the situation, that, that we're not seeing the gospel uh, being ineffective at changing hearts and cultures. We're seeing 
a, a large group of people who give lip service to the gospel, failing to change the culture themselves. That's what we're seeing. That's what we've been seeing for some time. And I want to say this very clearly, and I want you to think about what I'm saying. God does not want you to do something for Him. He doesn't, and He never has. People for millennia tried to do something for God and proved again and again in every possible situation that they could not do anything for God. It didn't matter if they were in the land or out of the land. It didn't matter if they had a king or judges or no government at all. It didn't matter who was speaking to them, a happy prophet, a sad prophet, a whiny prophet. Every possible scenario happens, and never are the people able to do anything meaningful for God. God does not want you to do anything for him. God wants you to understand that he's already done everything for you in the person of Jesus Christ. All God wants is for us to believe that, to believe that we are utterly incapable of doing anything meaningful for him, and he's already done everything for us in Jesus Christ. I would say uh, what we're seeing here is God does want, God clearly wants to do something through us. And often he does it in such a way that it's clearly not our own power that is making the thing happen, right? Paul didn't strike Elimus blind. The Holy Spirit did. No one could read this and be like, man, Paul, he's effective. Like it's It's clearly the Spirit of God through Christ at work in Paul. What Paul's doing is not a display of Paul's power. What Paul's doing is a display of God's power. And that's still true today. God wants to do something through us. He very much wants to do something through us. But we cannot do anything for Him. And it doesn't matter what we look at, What what act of obedience we're looking at, if we're thinking that we're going to do it in our power, we're going to fail at doing it. Certainly, that's the case with evangelism. But God has been very specific about what He wants from us. Get the news of Jesus Christ, the news that Jesus Christ has already done everything for us, out to the highways, to the hedges, to the, to the people that everybody else has forgotten, to the people that everybody else has given up on, to absolutely everyone. Simply to get the news of what God has done out and let the Spirit do His work. And so you know, when we, we think about our task as a church, when we think about the evangelistic task, Whether or not we're willing to do it isn't the only thing that matters. Very much how we think about what the Lord has called us to do matters. If we think uh, that it is us 
who does anything. Like, we've already failed. It is not country Bible that changes people's hearts. It's the Spirit of God through the Word of God that changes people's hearts. And, and that's exactly, I think, what you're seeing in this text, that the Spirit of God through Paul and Barnabas uh, see a heart turned away from darkness and towards light. And so if we're looking for things to emulate in this text, I think like simply a willingness to obey the Lord, a willingness to clearly proclaim Christ and a readiness to see fruit come to blossom as a result is the thing that we should be emulating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, I repent. God, I, I readily admit that that I often walk with a spirit of self-importance and that I uh, carry uh, carry this with me and that I I struggle to obey because of it. And God, I, I pray that uh, you would wash my heart clean of any of it, Lord, to the extent that uh, we struggle with that, Lord, I pray that you would root it out of each of us. God, that we would recognize and believe and say and know that you have done everything for us through Jesus Christ. God, that we would sense the peace that comes through him. God, we would know the joy of rest in him. God, that we would feel the lightness of his yoke, and yet eagerly strain to see other prisoners released. God, I pray that we would be people always eager to proclaim the truth that nothing can be done for you because you've done everything on behalf of your people. God, I pray that you would Give us an even greater eagerness to see this truth grow out, go out. Lord, I pray that uh, we would continue more and more to be a church uh, expectant in your working and God, eager to obey. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.